Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. I'm Judge Michael Warren, and in this episode, we will continue our review of Article I of the Constitution, which establishes the Congress. We have completed our examination of Sections 1 through 5 of Article I, and now we move on to explore Section 6, which addresses congressional pay, congressional immunity, and special prohibitions applicable to members of Congress. Today, we will be focusing on congressional pay in particular. One editorial note before we begin that applies to all of our constitutional episodes. When recounting the Constitutional Convention during transitions between quoted speakers, I may, without attribution, leave in the language used by Madison and others who recorded the debates. I am not plagiarizing. I'm trying to give the founders their due by using their exact phraseology. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett and spectacular Sheila Guerin and enchanting Aaron Mercino. Thank you for all your support. Please subscribe and encourage your fellow patriots and anyone interested in the Constitution to do the same. When we return, Mike Gerard will get us started. This is bombastic Brent Bassett, and I would like to dedicate this episode to my father-in-law, R. Frank Cuff, who passed away on August 3, 2023. Frank Cuff was a passionate defender of freedom, a true patriot, and decorated veteran. Dad graduated from Gorham Fayette High School in 1966, and like a lot of young men at that time, he was drafted into the United States Army the following year. After his basic training, he was sent to Troop C of the 3rd Squadron, 4th Cavalry, known as the Three-Quarter Cav, with the 25th Infantry Division in Vietnam. I would like to quote part of an article written about Dad in the State Line Observer in Ohio about his time in Vietnam. It quotes Dad as well as excerpts from the book A Hundred Miles of Bad Road by Dwight Birdwell and Keith Nolan, which mentions Dad a number of times. Dad talks of his arrival in Vietnam and what it was like for the soldiers. Quote, Those guys would be out on maneuvers, driving up and down the roads, searching houses in the middle of the night, Dad said. Everybody was probably afraid, but once they said go, everybody just jumped up and did their job. There were some really bad days, Cuff said. Sometimes seven to ten people would get killed in his troop in one day. But the next day, when they said go, you just went back out there and did it again, he said. Sure, there was a grieving minute, but those guys were soldiers and did what they had to do. And that describes Dad to a T. Dad was with the three-quarter cav when the Tet Offensive was launched by the North Vietnamese in early 1968. Troop C was dispatched to help defend the Tan Sun Nut Air Base in Saigon, which was under attack. Dad's unit was the first unit to reach the air base and help the beleaguered defenders. Of course, they didn't know that a massive series of assaults had been launched or that the U.S. Embassy had been attacked. Continuing in the article, quote, It wasn't just a band of guerrillas they were about to encounter. The guerrillas were backed up by a regiment of North Vietnamese regulars. Cuff said that about 2,700 of the enemy was dug in, while his group numbered about 30. The battle started in utter confusion, as the sort of attack generally launched by the U.S. troops was coming back at them. They were hemmed in on the road from both sides. The vehicles were soon destroyed by rocket-propelled grenades, and the toll of wounded and dead soldiers grew. By that stage in the battle, Birdwell writes in his book, most of the survivors of the Point Platoon had made it back down to the side of the road to my tanks, thanks to Spec 4 Russell Bohm and Private First Class R. Frank Cuff, who laid down a tremendous base of covering fire from their separate tracks, and then, when their vehicles were hit, from the ditch, using hand grenades and loose M16s and the M60 machine guns, each had dismounted. Just when the situation looked the most dire... You didn't have a prayer to get out of there, Cuff said. Troop B arrived on the scene to drive the enemy away, accompanied by strafing from Huey helicopters. The three-quarter cavalry had saved the airbase. Dwight Birdwell helped defend the airbase with Dad that day. And last year, Dwight finally received the Congressional Medal of Honor he earned for his actions that day. Dad was proud to be with Dwight Birdwell when he received the Medal of Honor at a White House ceremony. Dwight said this about Dad, quote, 
There was never any question about Frank. He was one of the finest and the best. He could always be called upon. He was right there with me and was always ready to go in on the worst of it. The government made a good investment in drafting Frank Cuff. Dad left Vietnam with the scars of war, and among his decorations were the Combat Infantryman's Badge, a Bronze Star for Valor, and a Purple Heart. Of course, Dad got back to work when he returned. As he says in the article, quote, I came back and worked and worked, which he did, setting an example for his daughter Jennifer and his son Mark. Dad became involved in a number of veterans organizations, including the Three-Quarter Cavalry Association and the VFW, Veterans of Foreign Wars, and would speak in schools and other groups, tirelessly working on behalf of his fellow veterans. He is a hero to Jennifer and especially his son, Mark, and I am proud and grateful for the privilege of being his son-in-law. Like Dwight said, he was one of the finest and the best he could always be called upon. As I was writing this, I got to thinking how grateful I am for all of our veterans serving to defend our freedoms across the globe, including those who served in Vietnam, men like Fighting Frank Cuff or Russ Cowboy Bohm or Dwight Birdwell, and all of the men and women who serve and have served our country. God bless you and thank you for your service. And like many, Dad said, I am proud of my service. I was just doing my job, not trying to be a hero. You are our hero, Dad. God bless you and keep you, Dad. I love you. You will be missed. As we previously discussed, the first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Sections 1 through 5 of that article establish the House of Representatives and Senate, how the members of each chamber are chosen, the qualifications of and terms of office for the House of Representatives and the Senate, who sets the rules for congressional election, the requirement that Congress meet at least once every year, and the internal organization and processes of the Congress. Section 6 moves to new subjects. The first sentence addresses congressional pay as follows. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. This seemingly simple sentence has several important provisions. The first is that it requires that members of Congress be paid. This seems pretty obvious to us today, but actually members of the British House of Commons were not paid until 1911, and members of the House of Lords, even to this day, usually do not receive a salary, but they do receive a stipend for each day they attend Parliament. The Constitution broke with this British precedent by providing that all representatives and senators be paid compensation. This has the obvious advantage of allowing persons from all walks of life to serve in the Congress. Otherwise, only the independently wealthy could serve. Worse, if there was no pay, those who were corrupt could try to leverage their position into making money just to survive or to become wealthy. The payment of salaries was included in the Virginia Plan introduced at the Constitutional Convention by Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph on May 29, 1787. As we previously noted, this plan, also known as the Randolph Plan, was mostly drafted by James Madison, and he convinced Randolph to introduce it. It includes 15 resolutions, the fourth and fifth of which provided for two branches of the Congress. Those two resolutions also provided the respective members of Congress were to receive liberal stipends by which they may be compensated for the devotion of their time to the public service. Notice that although the draft says the representatives and senators will be paid, it doesn't identify who would pay the stipends or how much they would be. On June 12th, a debate over the Virginia Plan's language began, 
James Madison first addressed the debate over compensation. In connection with the House of Representatives, he moved that the stipends should be at a fixed set amount in the Constitution since it would be improper to leave the members of the national legislature to be provided for by the state legislature because it would create an improper dependence and to leave them to regulate their own wages through wheat or some other article of which the average price throughout a reasonable period preceding might be settled in some convenient mode would form a proper standard. Did you catch the part where Madison suggests that they would be paid in wheat or some other commodity? Well, that was actually not uncommon. For example, Virginia used to pay its ministers in tobacco. Back then, specie, that is metal currency, was hard to come by, and many people didn't want to be paid in paper money. So, commodities like wheat, whiskey, and other items could be the form of payment. Virginia's George Mason seconded the motion. He added that it was important to set the rate of compensation in the Constitution because... It would be improper to leave the wages to be regulated by the states. First, the different states would make different provisions for their representatives, and an inequality would be felt among them, whereas I think they ought to be in all respects equal. Secondly, the parsimony of the states might reduce the provisions so low that as had already happened in choosing delegates to Congress, the question would be not who were most fit to be chosen, but who were most willing to serve. This amendment would require that all members of the House of Representatives be paid the same. To make the pay uniform across the country, there needs to be a national standard. Otherwise, Virginia could pay their members of Congress three times as much as Georgia. Furthermore, experience with the Congress under the Articles of Confederation revealed that the states often barely paid their representatives. To allow this to happen under the Constitution would eviscerate the ability to attract the highly talented into the government. This amendment, Madison hoped, would remedy the situation. Madison's proposal of requiring the stipends to be fixed was passed, eight states to three. Now, it was time for the elder statesmen of the convention to chime in. Dr. Benjamin Franklin said he approved of the amendment just made for rendering the salaries as fixed as possible, but he took his aim on the text that provided that they would be paid liberal stipends. I dislike the word liberal. I prefer the word moderate if it was necessary to substitute any other. There is a tendency of abuses in every case to grow themselves when once begun and the progression of ecclesiastical benefices from the first departure from the gratuitous provision for the apostles to the establishment of the papal system. Franklin was concerned with the opposite of what Madison raised. Madison didn't want the pay to be a subsistence wage, and Franklin didn't want the pay to be extravagant. The experience with the Roman Catholic Church, Franklin thought, meant that members of the Congress would be paid way too much if his amendment was not passed. Dr. Franklin was very persuasive, and the word liberal was struck out by a consensus. Another quick amendment occurred on the source of the pay. George's William Pierce, in a rare remark on the convention floor, moved that the wages for the House of Representatives should be paid out of the national treasury. The resolution overwhelmingly passed, eight states to three. The text now read that members of Congress were to receive fixed stipends to be paid out of the national treasury. But the debate was not quite done by a long shot. Connecticut delegate Oliver Ellsworth, who was instrumental in the great compromise that divided the Congress into a House of Representatives, represented in proportion to the population of each state and a Senate in which each state had an equal number of senators, moved to substitute payment by the states out of their own treasuries. He observed, That the manners of different states are very different in their style of living and in the profits accruing from the exercise of like talents. 
What, then, would be deemed, therefore, a reasonable compensation in some states, in others would be very unpopular, and might impede the system of which made it a part. In other words, the individual states would have different ideas of what would be fair compensation, and having them all paid the same would introduce friction into the government. North Carolina delegate Hugh Williamson favored the idea arguing that the newer states shouldn't have to pay the salaries of the older states, who would likely be political opponents. I remind the House of the prospect of new states to the westward. They would be too poor, would buy little into the common treasury, and would have a different interest from the old states. I do not think, therefore, that the latter ought to pay the expense of men who would be employed in thwarting their measures and interests. Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorham spoke next. Gorham was on the cutting edge of the American Revolution. Serving in the Massachusetts legislature from 1771 to 1775, he was a delegate of the Massachusetts Revolutionary Government from 1774 to 1775 and a member of the Board of War from 1778 until 1781. He served in the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, including as president for five months. He was also a judge for the Middlesex Court of Common Pleas. He often chaired the Federal Constitutional Convention, especially during the most heated discussions in May and June. And he wanted to keep compensation with the national government to make sure the Congress would be paid sufficiently to keep men of talent. But he also didn't think that the Constitution should set a particular rate of pay. He noted that the state legislatures paid themselves without any apparent animosity. I wish not to refer the matter to the state legislatures, who were always paring down salaries in such a manner as to keep out of office men most capable of executing the functions of them. Also, it would be wrong to fix the compensation by the Constitution because we could not venture to make it as liberal as it ought be without exciting an enmity against the whole plan. Let the national legislature provide their own wages from time to time, as the state legislatures do. I had not seen this part of their power abused, nor do I apprehend an abuse of it. Governor Randolph returned to address the floor. He also opposed having the states pay, remarking that the convention should not defer to the people of the United States, but instead needed to empower the national government by making the members of Congress independent of the states. I fear we were going too far in consulting popular prejudices. Whatever respect might be due to them in lesser matters, all in cases where they form the permanent character of the people. I think it neither incumbent on nor honorable for the convention to sacrifice right and justice to that consideration. If the states were to pay the members of the national legislature, a dependence would be created. That would vitiate the whole system. The whole nation has an interest in the attendance and services of the members. The National Treasury, therefore, is the proper fund for supporting them. Massachusetts Delegate Rufus King joined the fray. He agreed with Randolph that to avoid dependence on the states, the national government must pay. He also thought that the Constitution should explicitly provide what the pay would be to avoid criticism about having Congress pay itself too much. I urge the danger of creating a dependence on the states by leaving to them the payment of the members of the national legislature. I suppose it would be best to be explicit as to the compensation to be allowed, a reserve on that point, or a reference to the national legislature of the quantum, would excite greater opposition than any 
that would be actually necessary or proper. Connecticut Delegate Roger Sherman, on the other hand, voiced support for having the states pay. Pennsylvania's James Wilson countered Sherman, claiming that the national government must be independent and that fixing the salary was unwise because the Constitution could not account for changes in the value of compensation. I am against fixing the compensation as circumstances would change and call for a change of the amount. I think it of great moment that the members of the national government should be left as independent as possible of the state governments in all respects. Virginia's James Madison supported the national government paying the salary, but thought fixing the compensation was wise, thinking it could be done by adopting a standard that would not be subject to change. I concur in the necessity of preserving the compensations for the national government independent of the state governments, but at the same time approve of fixing them by the Constitution, which might be done by taking a standard which would not vary with circumstances. I dislike particularly the policy suggested by Mr. Williamson of leaving the members from the poor states beyond mountains to the precarious and parsimonious support of their constituents. If the western states hereafter arising should be admitted into the Union, they ought to be considered as equals and as brethren. Their representatives were to be associated in the common councils. It was of common concern that such provisions should be made as would invite the most capable and respectable characters into service. New Yorker Alexander Hamilton agreed with Madison and the others supporting paying the compensation from the National Treasury. However, he broke ranks with Madison on whether the compensation should be fixed. He argued a fixed compensation was not practical. Wilson then moved that the salaries of the first branch be ascertained by the national legislature and be paid out of the national treasury. Madison was repulsed by this idea. The members of the legislature would be too much interested in their own compensation. It would be indecent to put their hands into the public purse for the sake of their own pockets. The question, shall the salaries of the first branch be ascertained by the national legislature, was defeated seven states to two. A few days earlier, on June 15th, in opposition to the Virginia plan, New Jersey delegate William Patterson proposed a counterplan, now commonly known as the New Jersey plan or the Patterson plan. On June 19th, Madison came with all his guns trained on the New Jersey plan. The New Jersey plan basically kept the structure of the Congress as it was under the Articles of Confederation, meaning that states would have one vote each in the Congress. This was popular with the smaller states because it gave them more power than would exist if the legislature was determined by population. Under this plan, the payment of the congressmen would remain with the states. Among many of Madison's attacks was one that seemed of little consequence to our modern sensibilities, but hit hard back then, especially in connection with the payment of members of the House of Representatives. I beg the smaller states which were most attached to Mr. Patterson's plan, to consider the situation in which it would leave them. In the first place, they would continue to bear the whole expense of maintaining their delegates in Congress. It ought not to be said that if they were willing to bear this burden, no others had a right to complain. As far as it led the small states to forbear keeping up a representation, by which the public business was delayed, it was evidently a matter of common concern. An examination of the minutes of Congress would satisfy every one that the public business had been frequently delayed by this cause, and that the states most frequently unrepresented in Congress were not the larger states. I remind the convention of another consequence of leaving on a small state 
the burden of maintaining a representation in Congress. During a considerable period of the war, one of the representatives of Delaware, in whom alone before the signing of the Confederacy, the entire vote of that state, and after that event, one half of its vote, frequently resided, was a citizen and resident of Pennsylvania and held an office in his own state incompatible with an appointment from it to Congress. During another period, the same state was represented by three delegates, two of whom were citizens of Pennsylvania and the third a citizen of New Jersey. But, whatever might have been the cause, was not in effect the vote of one state doubled and the influence of another increased by it? In the second place, the coercion on whom the efficacy of the plan depends can never be exerted but on themselves. The larger will be impregnable. The smaller only can feel the vengeance of it. I illustrate the position by the history of the ancient Greek Amphictyonic Confederates and the ban of the German Empire. It was the cobweb which could entangle the weak, but would be the sport of the strong. Madison was explaining that when the states paid their representatives under the Articles of Confederation, the smaller states often didn't show up because they weren't paid. In fact, Delaware was so stingy that it was represented by people from other states. If the Patterson Plan was adopted, the smaller states would fall back into this pattern. They wouldn't have the wherewithal to pay the compensation of their members, which would give the bigger, richer states an undue influence in Congress. It was essential that Congress be paid out of the national treasury. No vote happened on this date. The question of compensation of the House of Representatives was revisited on June 22, 1787. Delegate Oliver moved that any compensation be the responsibility of the states. Alexander Hamilton renewed his opposition to it, pressing. The distinction between the state governments and the people, the former, would be the rivals of the general government. The state legislatures ought not, therefore be the paymasters of the latter. Ellsworth countered that if the federal government was to pay, it would offend the sensibilities of the people of the states and would not be supported. The motion failed. Then the convention returned to whether the compensation would be fixed, and quickly the convention agreed for practical reasons to allow for adequate compensation instead of fixed stipends. After some discussion, the issue was postponed for other business. On June 26, the convention returned to the discussion, this time solely in connection with the Senate. South Carolina's General Coatsworth Pinckney moved that No salary should be allowed, as this senatorial branch was meant to represent the wealth of the country. It ought to be composed of persons of wealth, and if no allowance was to be made, the wealthy alone would undertake the service. This was some brass tacks. The Senate was supposed to represent the aristocracy, the propertied interests, the wealthy. Therefore, only independently wealthy people should serve as senators. Perhaps to our surprise, Dr. Franklin seconded the motion. I wish the convention to stand fair with the people. There were in it a number of young men who would probably be of the Senate. If lucrative appointments should be recommended, we might be chargeable with having carved out places for ourselves. In other words, Franklin didn't want the Constitutional Convention to be accused of a corrupt business of creating rich positions for themselves. Remember, the senators were to be appointed by the state legislatures, and naturally many in the convention would likely serve in the Senate. That the convention was giving itself future jobs just struck Franklin as being unseemly. Although this motivation was somewhat opposed to Pinckney's argument that only the wealthy should serve in the Senate to protect their prerogatives, the two delegates got to the same spot. Still, the question was defeated, six states to five. North Carolina delegate Hugh Williamson spoke next. 
Williamson is an underappreciated member of the convention today. He served on five committees, offered 23 motions, and spoke 70 times. Williamson began his career as a teacher, then became a scientist. In 1774, he wrote a political tract against British oppression. He became a merchant, then a shipbuilder to support the revolution. Then he served as Surgeon General for North Carolina, vaccinated American troops, served in the North Carolina House of Commons, served in the Continental Congress, and after the Constitutional Convention, would serve in Congress under the Constitution. On this day, he moved to change the expression as follows. To receive a compensation for the devotion of their time to the public service. The motion was seconded by Delegate Ellsworth. It was approved by all the states, with the sole exception of South Carolina. Ellsworth then moved that the Senate be paid by their respective states because the states would have the proper incentive to ensure that they would be properly paid. If the Senate was meant to strengthen the government, it ought to have the confidence of the states. The states will have an interest in keeping up a representation and will make such provisions for supporting the members as will ensure their attendance. Madison vociferously disagreed. Remember, the Senate was going to be chosen by the state legislatures. He explained that having them paid by them, too, would make the senators completely dependent on the state legislatures, subverting their independence in the most deleterious way. This is a departure from a fundamental principle and subverting the end intended by allowing the Senate a duration of six years. They would, if this motion should be agreed to, hold their places during pleasure, during the pleasure of the state legislatures. One great end of the institution was that being a firm, wise, and impartial body, it might not only give stability to the general government in its operations on individuals, but hold an even balance among the different states. The motion would make the Senate, like Congress under the Articles of Confederation, the mere agents and advocates of state interests and views, instead of being the impartial umpires and guardians of justice and the general good. Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, had lately, by the establishment of a board with full powers to decide on the mutual claims between the United States and the individual states, fairly acknowledged themselves to be unfit for discharging this part of the business referred to them by the Confederation. Madison had a point. If the state legislatures controlled the pay of the senators, they could cut or eliminate their pay if they disagreed with how the senators were voting or otherwise performing their job, or increase their compensation to reward them for actions the senators might otherwise avoid, which might not be bribery, but was certainly corrupt. New Jersey delegate Jonathan Dayton considered the payment of the Senate by the states as fatal to the Senate's independence. He remarked he was decidedly for paying them out of the national treasury. The motion to have them paid by the states was defeated 6-5. to five. On a side note, on July 2nd, Delegate Gunning Bedford Jr. remarked the senators should be rich enough to pay themselves, but this did not result in any further attempts to cut the pay or change the source of pay of the Senate. And as we've explored in prior episodes, on August 6th, a committee presented a full draft of the Constitution based on decisions made up to that point. Article 6, Section 10 of the August 6th report provided, The members of each House shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained and paid for by the state in which they shall be chosen. Wait just a minute! We just spent a bunch of time going through the debates in excruciating detail and the Congress repeatedly voted to have the national government pay for members of the House of Representatives and the Senate? What the heck? Yeah, that's actually true. Apparently, the committee deviated on occasion from the votes of the convention, perhaps hoping to, you know, slip something by or hoping that the sensibilities of the convention had or would change. Well, whatever the explanation, the committee's sleight of hand was not going to be unnoticed. Oliver Ellsworth went right in for the attack. 
In reflecting on this subject, I had been satisfied that too much dependence on the states would be produced by this mode of payment. I moved to strike it out and insert that they should be paid out of the Treasury of the United States an allowance not exceeding blank dollars per day or the present value thereof. Governor Morris agreed with the motion. He remarked that, If the members were to be paid by the states, it would throw an unequal burden on the distant states, which would be unjust as the legislature was to be a national assembly. I move that the payment be out of the national treasury, leaving the quantum to the discretion of the national legislature. There could be no reason to fear that they would overpay themselves. Pierce Butler countered that unless they were paid by the states, that the representatives, and especially the senators, would be out of touch with their constituents. New Hampshire delegate Oliver Ellsworth was not unwilling himself to trust the legislature with authority to regulate their own wages, but well knew that an unlimited discretion for that purpose would produce strong, though perhaps insuperable, objections. He thought changes in the value of money provided for his motion in the words, or the present value thereof, was against payment by the states. There would be some difficulty in fixing the sum, but it would be unjust to oblige the distant states to bear the expense of their members in traveling to and from the seat of government. Madison and Gary made some quick comments. Mason complained that having the states pay the salaries of the members of the House of Representatives made them dependent on the states. Broom argued that the Congress should pay itself, just like the states currently did. Sherman remarked that the Congress might make the wages so low that only the rich could serve, and therefore moved that they be paid at least $5 a day, plus additional payments as the states saw best. Maryland delegate Daniel Carroll summarized the fears of many when he noted, I am much surprised at seeing this clause in the report. The dependence of both houses on the state legislatures is complete, especially as the members of the former are eligible to state offices. The states can now say, mm, if you do not comply with our wishes, we will starve you. <clears throat> and if you do, we will reward you. The new government with this form is nothing more than a second edition of Congress in two volumes instead of one, and perhaps with very few amendments. In other words, if they adopted this provision, Carroll thought that all the Constitution would do is divide the Congress into a House of Representatives and Senate, but the states would still dominate the government. John Dickinson agreed and elaborated about how payment by the states would simply subvert the whole constitutional enterprise. He also suggested that Congress be required to set the salary every 12 years using whatever form of payment they thought best, such as wheat or other commodities if necessary. I take it for granted that all are convinced of the necessity of making the general government independent of the prejudices, passions, and improper views of the state legislatures. The contrary of this was effected by the section as it stands. On the other hand, there were objections against taking a permanent standard, such as wheat, which had been discussed on a former occasion, as well as leaving the matter to the pleasure of the national legislature. I propose that an act should be passed every 12 years by the national legislature settling the quantum of their wages. If the general government should be left dependent on the state legislatures, it would be happy for us if we had never met in this room. After additional short comments by Ellsworth, Luther Martin, and Carroll, the question for paying the members of the legislature out of the national treasury passed. Nine to two. Yes. Finally, this section is done. What? Are you kidding, Judge? I thought you write these scripts. You think the convention is done? Come on! This, by the way, is why they call me Bombastic Brent Bassett. Ellsworth moved that the pay be fixed at $5 or the present value thereof during their attendance and for every 30 miles in travel to and from Congress. Massachusetts Delegate Caleb strongly disagreed. He preferred $4, leaving the states at liberty to make additions. 
The motion was defeated 9-2. Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson proposed that wages of all members of both houses should be required to be the same. Delaware delegate Jacob Broom seconded him. Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorm opposed this supposedly leveling idea. This would be unreasonable. The Senate will be detained longer from home, will be obligated to remove their families, and in times of war, perhaps, to sit constantly. Their allowance should certainly be higher. The members of the Senate's in the states are allowed more than those of the other house. This was an apparently devastating attack. Dickinson withdrew his motion. It was then moved and unanimously agreed to amend the section by adding that the rate of pay was to be ascertained by law. The convention determined that members of the House of Representatives and the Senate would be paid out of the national treasury as determined by law. This would provide the independence from the states necessary for Congress to fulfill its duties. This was not a universally supported proposition. In the closing days of the convention, on the fifth day of Patriot Week, that is, September 15, 1787, Delegate Edmund Randolph voiced a number of objections to the final draft of the Constitution, including on the want of some limit to the power of the legislature in regulating their own compensation. Likewise, Delegate Eldridge Gary, in a speech explaining why he would not be signing the Constitution, listed as his fourth of 11 reasons as the unlimited power of Congress over their unlimited compensation. Virginia Delegate George Mason would also oppose the Constitution in part because of this provision. And so ended the discussion in the convention. Thank you, bombastic Brent Bassett. It probably comes as no surprise that this dissenting view in the Constitutional Convention was picked up by the Anti-Federalist. Randolph led the way by proposing 10 amendments to the proposed Constitution, one of which was eliminating the ability of Congress to set its own salary. Northern Irish immigrant William Finley moved to Pennsylvania and was a weaver and teacher and fought in the American Revolution beginning as a private and ending up as a captain. He represented his county in state politics in 1785 and 1786, and then represented his county at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention. He would later serve in the Pennsylvania State Legislature and then the U.S. Congress for four terms. He helped broker the end of the Whiskey Rebellion, including by meeting with George Washington. He was a very strong supporter of Jefferson and Madison while he served in Congress. But at the Ratifying Convention in Pennsylvania, he remarked that, The mana in which the wages of the members is paid, makes another proof that the proposed constitution established a general government and destroyed the individual governments. Finley turned the convention's support of an independent Congress into a positive evil. Congress would destroy the states. Massachusetts leading light Mercy Otis Warren, likely one of my distant relatives, lambasted the provision in the strongest possible terms. As the new Congress are empowered to determine their own salaries, the requisitions for this purpose may not be very moderate, and the drain for public monies will probably rise past all calculations. As the new Congress are empowered to determine their own salaries, the requisitions for this purpose may not be very moderate, and the drain for public monies will probably rise past all calculations. And it is to be feared when America has consolidated its despotisms, the world will witness the truth of the assertion that the pomp of an Eastern monarch may impose on the vulgar who may estimate the force of a nation by the magnificence of its palaces. But the wise man judges differently. It is by that very magnificence that he estimates its weakness. He sees nothing more in the midst of this imposing pope when the tyrant sets enthroned than a sumptuous and mournful decoration of the dead, the apparatus of a fatuitous funeral, in the center of which is a cold and lifeless lump of unanimated earth, a phantom of power ready to disappear before the enemy, by whom it is despised. Warren's denunciation could not be more vivid. This provision would lead to a corrupt, self-feeding, monarchical-like tyranny. 
More tempered reactions were promulgated by several ratifying conventions, including New York, North Carolina, and Virginia. New York ratified the Constitution and sent a set of recommended amendments for the first Congress to consider, one of these of which was that the compensation for the senators and representatives be ascertained by standing laws, and that no alteration of an existing rate of compensation shall operate for the benefit of the representatives until after a subsequent election shall have been had. In other words, any proposed change in pay for Congress would not take effect until another congressional election after the pay hike was approved. This protected against outgoing congressmen from raising all their salaries as they were leaving office. North Carolina and Virginia used similar verbiage, except they recognized that the first Congress would need to be paid before the next election. The Federalists vigorously countered that the Congress needed to set its own salary, unencumbered. One Federalist writer used the pseudonym Civis Rusticus. Writing in opposition to George Mason's objections, which included that the Senate would make itself a rich aristocracy by being in charge of its own salary, Civis Rusticus explained that this was simply an unfounded fear because the House of Representatives and the President would not allow it to happen. The Senate can fix no salaries without the consent and approbation of the President. Here they are checked. If we supposed both these bodies colluding, which would at once demonstrate their wickedness and folly, and setting salaries at an infinitely exorbitant pitch and above services, will not the House of Representatives reclaim against such measures and refuse all grants of money till they are altered and redressed? Of this truly respectable part of the Constitution, in my idea, there is not the least ground for apprehension or fear. They cannot take their seats till 30 years of age. The presumption is not a violent one that their integrity will be tried and their abilities known and approved. Most of them probably will be past the heyday in the blood, weaned from the intoxicating dissipation of youth and the hot allurement of pleasure. North Carolina Judge James Iredell, using the pen name Marcus II, also responding to George Mason, pointed out that the power to fix the salary must be placed somewhere, and that the representatives of the people were the safest depository for it. After all, if that power was abused, the representatives could be turned out of office. I am persuaded, upon little reflection, that gentlemen, Mr. Mason, must think this is one of those cases where a trust must unavoidably be reposed. No salaries could certainly be fixed now, so as to answer the various changes in the value of money that in the course of time must take place. And in what condition would the supreme authority be if their very subsistence depended on an inferior power? and because in this case too would be so gross that it is very unlikely to happen. But if it should, it would probably prove much more fatal to the authors than injurious to the people. But perhaps the most persuasive observation was made by John Stevens of New Jersey. During the Revolution, he was a militia captain, New Jersey state treasurer, and state surveyor general. He then wrote extensively in favor of the ratification of the Constitution. Later on, he became heavily involved in developing steamboats, and he developed the first ocean-going steamboat. His observation was very simple. I have but one observation to make on this head. It does not appear to me to be an object of sufficient magnitude to make it necessary to call together another convention. Simply put, even if he didn't agree with the provision, it definitely was not important enough to hold up the adoption of the Constitution. That pretty much summed it up. And though I'd never suggest that the importance of this issue was oversized in the amount of debate that was placed over it, it does remind me quite a bit about when I sanctioned lawyers for making terrible arguments or misleading the court about how much time and energy they spend in trying to defend their integrity as well as trying to precisely determine how much sanction should be allocated to their misbehavior. I'm wondering if the prominence of lawyers at the Constitutional Convention somehow inflated how much time and energy was spent on this particular issue. But put that aside, 
we're going to continue with the rest of Article 1, Section 6, in our next regular episode. Some key takeaways from this episode. Members of Congress are entitled to be paid. This ensures that you don't need to be rich to serve in Congress. The members are paid by the federal government. This ensures that the members of the Congress are independent of state pressure and coercion. The members of Congress set their own pay. This places the ultimate responsibility in the hands of the representatives of the people, where it belongs. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skenechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer and multi-talented, bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history, along with all the other fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, when we continue our exploration of the United States Congress, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.